Sorry for the delay. I got horribly tangled up in my mask and my microphone. <clears throat> well, as uh, the title might indicate, uh, small wisdom. Lessons from 2021 for 2022. Today's sermon is going to be a little bit different from uh, the usual offering. Firstly, I'm taking the opportunity of a single sermon slot between series to preach a one-off message. Uh, up until Christmas, we've been looking at Revelation. Next week, we begin a new series on the book of Joel. Today, something to go in between. Secondly, my aim today is to offer four short lessons, lessons uh, that have, I believe, biblical precedent and support, life lessons I'm currently learning, in the hope that they're useful to others as well. Those four lessons are these. I'm going to talk today about, firstly, understanding the persecuted conscience. Secondly, something called competency extrapolation. Thirdly, the disproportionate response. Concluding with, fourth, understanding reaction and responding and doing one and not the other. As we'll see, these things are interconnected and united by the common theme of learning to live and talk and speak like Jesus. In other words, how to live wisely. And this is often the case with my sermons. I'm going to spend most of the time on the first point. So then by the time we finish point one, we'll actually be halfway through the sermon, so don't panic. Thus, to my first point, understanding the persecuted conscience. In August of last year, uh, I read a book entitled The Lives of Tudor Women by uh, historian Dr. Elizabeth Norton. Uh, it's an absolutely fascinating book and one I'd recommend to anyone who, like most Anglican ministers, has a fascination for the Tudor period and or the English Reformation. It's a really good book. And the book had lessons for me that maybe the author hadn't uh, possibly consciously intended. For me, more than anything else, uh, this was a book about religious persecution. The Tudor period was a period of people being persecuted for their religious beliefs and very often being burnt at the stake for them. Within the Tudor period, which begins uh, with King Henry VII, then King Henry VIII, uh, then uh, Edward VI, Lady Jane Grey, Queen Mary Tudor I, and lastly, Queen Elizabeth I. So we're talking about 1485 through to 1603. Within that Tudor period, we see significant numbers of Protestants being burnt at the stake by Catholics, Catholics being burnt at the stake by Protestants, Catholics being burnt at the stake by Catholics, and at least occasionally, Protestants being burnt at the stake by Protestants. During the reign of Mary Tudor, or Bloody Mary, as she is remembered, nearly, three, nearly 300 people were executed for their religious convictions as she tried to reverse the English Protestant Reformation that had been championed by her half-brother, Edward VI. No one, obviously, wants to be burnt at the stake. No, nobody wants that. It's not a nice way to die. If you don't know the details, lucky you. 
I suggest you avoid finding out. But it wasn't a good way to go, and everybody knew it. What you might not know is that no one had to die. No, no, no one had to be burnt at the stake. You could always recant. Uh, that meant I changed my mind. I repent and I renounce my earlier views. I now agree with the standard orthodoxy with the party line. And in the face of being burnt to death and also other tortures as well that would come your way, a lot of people recanted. But what surprised me was learning just how many people recanted their recantations. In other words, under torture, sure, they recanted, but later they took it back and said, I no longer recant. And when you did that, as everybody knew, you only get to recant once, not multiple times. And so lots of people were burnt to death. Um, uh, lots of the people who were burnt to death were bent, burnt, burnt to death because they recanted their recantations. Most famously, perhaps, Bishop Thomas Cranmer, the first and chief architect of the Anglican prayer book liturgy and much of Anglican Christian theology under intense pressure during the reign of Queen Mary, he recanted his Protestant views, like so many others. But then later, and again, like so many others, he recanted his recantation. And so, on the 21st of March, 1556, he was uh, burnt to death. And uh, famously, as the flames came up around him, he made good on a promise he'd made, and he plunged his right hand into the flames first to punish his right hand for having signed the recantation. I need to get to my point. <laughs> my point is this. The, the, the book showed me how when you persecute or punish someone for a matter of conscience, you actually harden their conscience and their resolve. That, that's what you're doing. One woman, a, a Protestant woman, was burnt to death by other Protestants for disagreeing with their established orthodoxy with respect to the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, the doctrine of the Trinity is no marginal or insignificant or debatable issue. It's extremely important. But uh, the, the point of disagreement was such a fine distinction that actually I had a hard time working out exactly what it was. Men and women, but mostly women, uh, mostly women for various reasons. One reason was that often they were the ones who didn't have the money to flee to the continent. Uh, men and women, but mostly women, were willing to die actually for quite minor points of theology uh, not, not because they happen to be very black and white in their thinking or very obstinate in their ways, but rather because having their consciences and resolve stiffened through persecution, they could not deny what it was that they believed, no matter the consequence. And my thought as I read the book was this. It is extremely important that we don't punish each other for matters of conscience. I've actually made this mistake in the past with some pretty awful consequences, and I'm keen to not make it again. It is extremely important that we don't punish each other 
for matters of conscience. In fact, the unity of the church depends upon us having learnt this lesson. There are currently two clear and present dangers, so to speak, to the unity of the church, wherein church in this context might mean this church, or it might mean, for example, the Anglican Diocese of Perth, or it could mean Christianity in general in Australia. Any of those things, or all of those things, two clear and present dangers to our unity. The first is the continuing debate about human sexuality and same-sex marriage. The second is whether an individual is pro or anti-vaccination. The Bible is relevant, indeed highly relevant, to both discussions. Both issues present as dilemmas, a choice between two. Two possible answers. We will all make a choice. We'll all want to justify ourselves in this choice, whatever that choice might be. And both issues have this in common. Having made a choice, we feel right. That is to say, we feel righteous for whichever position we might now be holding. And there are consequences to this. Given that we feel right about our own view, we'll naturally want to consider those who disagree with us wrong. Furthermore, whenever we might encounter a person with the alternate view, the opposite position to our own position, sensing that they consider us unrighteous and themselves righteous, then this will be an outrage um, to the righteousness we pride ourselves in. We may feel tempted to attack. The alternate view of righteousness inherently threatens my own internal view of righteousness. So attack will be the natural knee-jerk reaction. If I'm a subtle person, my attacks might be subtle. If I'm a crude person, my attacks might be blunt or rude. If I'm an intellectual person, my attacks might be intellectual. If I'm an associative person, my attacks might be associative. If I'm emotional, then emotive, etc. and etc. And that's, of course, what happened during the Reformation. Both sides attacked. There was no one who might ever say anything like, well, let's agree to disagree. No, both sides responded to the other side with attack and the accusation of heresy. Whereas, in fact, both sides were trying to live faithfully, but to diverging values. Now, I'm not for a moment suggesting that both sides of the Reformation debate were equally valid, or that it was all no more than simply a matter of personal conviction. No, heaven forbid. No, the Reformation needed to happen, and it was needed desperately. One side was more right than wrong, the other side more wrong than right. The arguments on one side were weak, the arguments on the other side were strong. And history would vindicate one side over and against the other in multiple ways. But for today, this isn't about who's right and who's wrong. It's about our experience of conflict. It's about the weight 
we relate to each other during times of potentially bitter disagreement. And how when we actually find ourselves punished for our views, we actually become just less and less likely to change them. As Paul describes in Romans chapter 14, the church must be a place where fellowship continues even when consciences disagree. I'll leave this point here, acknowledging that there's a lot more to say, but that's one lesson for me from 21.4.22. Stephen, don't punish people for disagreeing with you. A second lesson, competency extrapolation. Now, we live in an age of information availability that is wildly beyond anything that could ever have been imagined only a few short decades ago. Certainly, growing up in the 60s and 70s, we all imagined hover cars and shiny suits and Zappo ray guns and interplanetary space travel and pills instead of food. But I don't believe anyone imagined, not even for a moment, the smartphone combined with the internet combined with social media. I mean, if you used a time machine and went back in time just to the 70s, I'm not even sure how you'd even describe that. This means that we're all particularly vulnerable to a phenomenon noted and named variously, but one name that we could perhaps give it is competency extrapolation. Competency extrapolation is when a person assumes that they are an expert and knowledgeable in all areas because they are an expert and knowledgeable in one area. Competency extrapolation is dangerous. We might be tempted to say that this is simply a form of arrogance, but actually it's more than that. It's a form of self-confidence. It's, it's a, a form of, of pride, and it is deceitful. We deceive ourselves. Uh, in terms of understanding this phenomenon, a key question might be, what is the relationship between true ability and the confidence we have in our own ability? And hypothetically, we would imagine a simple, straight-line relationship. We'd imagine that um, as we increase in knowledge in some area, we would grow in confidence. We would imagine that as people, across people, as, as you increase in intelligence, in IQ, you'd also expect an increase in confidence. Well-informed and or intelligent people should have more confidence in their own ability than poorly informed or unintelligent people. That would make sense. But actually, as scientists have known for decades, the actual relationship is U-shaped. The very ignorant and very unintelligent are supremely confident in the fact that they are both knowledgeable and clever. Interestingly, the super-intelligent and super-knowledgeable also overestimate their abilities. And that's beautifully represented in the fictional sitcom Big Bang Theory, wherein Dr. Sheldon Cooper, who is indeed a genius, an acclaimed theoretical physicist with an eidetic memory, he never guesses for a moment 
Whenever he is in conversation with Penny, the cheese, cheesecake factory waitress, he never guesses for a moment that actually he's talking to someone who is almost infinitely wiser than himself. Penny knows how to live life successfully, but not Sheldon. Sheldon needs constant supervision in order to accomplish mundane tasks. Again, there are many consequences to this one simple phenomenon, competency extrapolation. For example, when I move from speaking about something I know a lot about to an area I know less about, I may actually increase in my confidence in my own position. In other words, when I do not know that I do not know what I'm talking about, I'm likely to think myself an international expert. Compared to most churches in Australia and around the world, actually, we are a clever bunch. To an extraordinary degree, the good folk of St. Barnabas Leadville are people who, come Monday to Friday, others look to, to answer their questions and solve their problems. We, we are a congregation of specialists, experts, and consultants, and not undeservingly so. On that basis, the world will call us leaders, and they will speak well of us. But we must watch out for that. Knowing the right answers has little to do with real leadership as far as the Bible is concerned. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. Sometimes real wisdom is knowing when to defer. So then, when it comes to the increasingly complex decisions that all of us find ourselves constantly being called upon to make for ourselves and indeed sometimes for others, one answer is to do the research ourselves. Go to Dr. Google. There's a risk, isn't there? The risk of that is that I'll become convinced early whilst actually I still don't know enough to know that I do not know what I'm talking about. And if ever I might find myself actually later on suffering or being persecuted for those views, they'll only stiffen and my resolve will harden. Another answer is to ask those who, who do know and to trust their answer, to, to know when to refer or defer. Not to trust them to be errant or infallible, that would be silly. But rather to simply acknowledge that this is their field, not ours, and that they can make mistakes too, but in this time when we all must, must decide one way or the other, we can't all be experts in everything. And if we try, it just might be fatal. I'm, I'm not advocating, abdicating from individual responsibility. I am saying that in an age of information saturation, we may need regular reminders that we don't and can't know everything. Competency extrapolation. I'll leave you to ponder this further, for it has many potential applications. The third thing that I'd like to talk about is the disproportionate response. And my point here is this. Beware the disproportionate response. To speak candidly, I, find, I sometimes find myself wondering, um, as I, I look at 
uh, um, helping people, and as I, I look at perhaps sometimes people that come my way needing help, I, I, I find myself wondering why this person or that person can't seem to find traction in their lives. Uh, what, what is it about some people that they, they, that they inadvertently constantly set themselves up for failure? One of the answers that suggests itself to me from observation is the power of the disproportionate response to rip failure from the jaws of success. The disproportionate response is exactly what it sounds like. It is when we overreact, usually overreact, potentially also underreact, but usually overreact to something that concerns us. This will be painfully familiar to any parent or teacher who has, reaching the end of their tether, severely punished a minor misdemeanor because they've reached the end of their tether and in doing so felt overwhelming shame and guilt. The discipline perhaps was necessary, but fueled by emotion, it became revenge. The disproportionate response. I, I, I myself, I know, I, I find it difficult intuitively to know sometimes what an appropriate response might be, especially if I, I'm feeling attacked, especially if I don't know that I'm feeling attacked, I just am feeling attacked. And I thank God heartily for the friendship and support of a man who in my life for nearly or more than 10 years has been helping me in this area. Um, occasionally he has over the years, gently suggested that I might consider acting at times when I'm tempted to drag my feet. But far more often, he's helped me by advising me against what would have been a disproportionate response. My wife is exceptionally good at this too, at helping, guarding me against the disproportionate response, and so is my office manager, or typist, as she's been known to be called. The problem with the disproportionate response is that it invites other disproportionate responses. Churches split and relationships break down, often because of an escalation of disproportionate responses. Governments make the mistake of disproportionate responses frequently. The Second Gulf War was many things, but one thing it most certainly was, was a disproportionate response to patchy and unconfirmed intelligence reports. It is something to watch for in ourselves and in others. Is this response a disproportionate response? A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And this uh, flows into topic number four. Respond, don't react. Or don't react, respond. This is perhaps the most difficult and complex of the four lessons I want to bring this morning, and it's also the one about which I'll probably say the least. But um, how can we understand it? Well, as you might expect, of course, I'm, I'm under professional supervision, and I meet with my supervisor each month. And one of the things that my professional supervisor keeps on saying to me, he says to me very often is, don't react, respond. Um, to simplify, it can mean this. It means that in conversation, I stop listening 
to the emotions provoked within me by what the other person is saying, and I start listening to what the other person is actually saying. And it's much harder to do than you might imagine. We've, we've all learnt how to do conversation. We've been trained in it rigorously, most of us. We've all been trained by our parents, by our friends, by our schools, by the standards and expectations of our peers in our various occupations and careers. We've been trained how to do conversation. Sometimes we've learned how to take control of a conversation as though it was a battlefield. Take the initiative, control the engagement, seize the higher ground and know how to hold it. Outflank and outmaneuver, using such strategies as interrupting, speaking over, cross-examining at the first opportunity, destroying fine nuance through caricature, building strawman arguments, blanket statements, oversimplifications, and flat contradictions. BBC journalist Stephen Sacker, who presents the BBC World Service flagship current affairs radio program entitled Hard Talk, He's an absolute master at this. I usually feel very sorry for his victims. I mean guests. <laughs> Even when they're unspeakable tyrants committing genocide, I still actually end up feeling sorry for them. Stephen Sacker wins every argument, whether he's right or wrong. Some people are so good at arguing, they'll never realize just how wrong they actually can be especially if they're international experts on everything. It's, it's distressing. Sometimes we've learnt just the opposite, haven't we? We've learnt how to placate and to appease. We've learnt how to keep the peace. We've learnt how to sense what the other person is wanting or needing and to give it to them, letting them hear what it is that we think they want to hear, whether that's the truth or not. We, we come away feeling inadequate and ashamed of ourselves, not only because we've capitulated on things that aren't true, but also because we've failed yet again to find the courage to say how actually we feel. People who, under interrogation by the police, confess crimes that they haven't actually committed, I totally understand how that can happen. Either way... Conversations can be devastating. In the Gospels, we see that Jesus could argue with the best of them. He was a master at rabbinic rhetorical form, for example, using questions to answer questions. He could outmaneuver the slipperiest of opponents and trap those intending to trap him. But he always responds, he never reacts. A man in a crowd shouts out, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And we instantly know a lot from just one sentence. We know that this man is the younger brother of two, two brothers. The father has died, and it is time to divide the inheritance, the estate, between the two of them. Seeing that there are two sons, the older son should receive a double share, whilst the younger one should receive a single share. Thus, the estate must be divided into three parts, and the older brother, who is legally in charge, must give away one-third of all that there is, 
of all that he's currently holding on to, to the younger brother. In the Old Testament, the law of Moses, land rights and inheritance laws are extremely important. The man in the crowd is raising a matter with Jesus, a matter of criminal injustice, the type of injustice precisely that the Old Testament in various places is deeply concerned with, oppression of the weaker power, sorry, oppression of the weaker party, the misuse of power. If Jesus is a teacher of God's word, his duty is clear. It is to establish justice and righteousness, and that means, in this situation, telling the older brother to do what's right and fair. For any number of reasons, I think I would have jumped right to it. Perhaps motivated by wanting to please, or wanting to be important, or grateful for the recognition, or wanting to avoid, uh, at all costs, disapproval, or simply because I enjoy bashing people over the head with the Bible... I would have jumped right to the task at hand, telling the older brother what the Bible has to say about this issue, about inheritance and theft. I would have reacted. Astonishingly, Jesus does no such thing. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter between you? There is an answer to that question, and it's a simple one, but the man in the crowd is, unsurprisingly, speechless. So Jesus goes on to reveal the real problem. The older brother and the younger brother, they each have this in common, and that is, dad's inheritance is more important to them than the other one. Dad's wealth is more important than my brother. They are divided, and they've been divided by greed. That's not at all uncommon. But it's still very sad. Jesus has responded rather than reacting. My professional supervisor is constantly saying to me, respond, don't react. I'm not very good at responding rather than reacting, But it is important to me, and I think it should be important to all of us. It captures something important about the way in which Jesus treats his fellow human beings. So then, four lessons from 21, 4, 22. Let's not make the mistake of persecuting people for the crime of disagreeing with us. Let's together watch out for competency extrapolation in ourselves as individuals and in our corporate culture. It's dangerous. The disproportionate response will continue to lead people into folly, so that's another thing for everyone to watch out and avoid. And in all of this, let's learn to respond rather than react. And the Lord be with you all.